Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Danny Shapiro. Danny is the award-winning author of six novels and five works of nonfiction. I've read some of both her fiction and nonfiction, and I can tell you she is one of the best and most talented writers working today. And as a, a quick side story to the introduction, when I first started planning out this show more than a year ago with the producers at SiriusXM, I had a wish list of 10 authors I hoped I could book on the show, and I don't mention this much because I don't want to disappoint authors who are coming on, but Danny was on my list of 10. So it's a special pleasure to have her today. Uh, in addition to her publishing and writing, though, she has co-founded a writer's conference that takes place in, wait for it, Positano, Italy. So we will learn more about that. And to top it all off, she has a huge hit podcast of her own called Family Secrets. So we'll talk about that, too. Danny, what a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. It's great to be with you, Doug. I am intrigued about your cocktail decision. I've been looking forward to it all <laughs> month, really. Because I've had many Negronis. I have never had a Mescal Negroni. It was a revelation to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to one big cube in each of these glasses. And so listeners can follow along. It basically has similar ingredients to a Negroni, which would be gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari. But instead of gin, you have Mescal, which we have here. I think Clooney already sold this company. So... <laughs> We're not lining his pockets today, but we have some Casamigos Mezcal. We'll start with that. And I know you're at the Strand tonight with a uh, friend of the show, Jennifer Egan, friend of yours. It's That's be a right. Great event. That's right. It, it'll be it'll be a, a, a drunken book tour stop now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, had I known, we would have had an invitation at, to her to join us for a drink. She had she had. Uh, requested the gold rush on this show mm. which was really good it was bourbon lemon and something else so i i can't even remember now but it was very I, good that sounds familiar to me i think she may have had one of those on one of our um on our covid zoom cocktail dates <laughs> <laughs> is that right would you just so just to socially sort of get together oh yeah oh that's fun yeah it was a great way actually to to see friends during that time. Yeah, I did. I had a Negroni while I was in Montana, and Amor Tolls was in 
New York. We did a similar thing. We just had a Zoom Negroni uh, chat. Was, was Amor's was Negroni? Yeah. It, it, that's, that was the drink the we classic. had on our Zoom, and that was the drink he had when he was on this show. Mm-hmm. So, but you're one-upping him with the mezcal Negroni. Now, I confess I cheated and I sliced the fruit before you got here, but I have a legit reason for doing that because I was on the train coming in and I realized I forgot the fruit knife. And so I had to hack it with a plastic knife that I found here in Sirius XM, and I didn't want to spray us with orange when I did that. So here we are. I can't wait to try this. Curious what you'll think. Oh, man, I'm splashing. I think I discovered this drink on on Twitter, Um, and it might have been from another writer. Oh, nice. Well, it smells good. Cheers. Cheers. Great to meet you. You too. That's really good. <laughs> I hope I hope that's a cough of pleasure. It went down the wrong way. <laughs> this is starting out well. <laughs> that's really good. I, it has like that sort of I don't know, smokiness of the mezcal, but it's got the Campari kind of sweetens it. It's mm-hmm. nice. All right. Very happy with my drink. So you were born in New York City. I was. And um, I think I read... You have one son, right? You've yes. moved up to Connecticut, but were you raising uh, your son here in the city as well? Yes, um, for the first three years of his life. Okay. Um, we lived on the Upper West Side when he was born. Then we quickly moved to Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, and lived in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn, for mm-hmm. three years. And then we we moved to the country. Okay. Yeah, that's the, I know you're... We're in Connecticut, too. I think you're a little farther up, which is looks just an amazing part of the world we were raising our kids here in the city for a while too and we loved it i think there's aspects to it that are really beneficial for our kids you sort of get a worldly experience and and more it, independence too at a yeah. much younger age yeah there's more they can do and they see more i mean it, the downside i guess is they're getting all these inputs which are wonderful but you can't control the inputs at these sort of early ages as much as as uh, maybe you'd like um, you know, the other thing, too, we, we were at an independent school for them for a little while, and there's lots of diversity in the city, but I think most of it comes outside of the school. You know, in these independent schools, it was like there were lots of sort of racial diversity. I, I remember there was a family where the father was black and the mother was from India, but they had met at Yale Law School. So it was <laughs> yeah, like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. we have a, we have a you know, an element of diversity, but not, uh, not exactly across the board. Yeah. No, I was struck. It was one, it was one of the harder, harder things. When we moved to the part of Connecticut where we live is up toward the, Ber- the Berkshires. It's the mm-hmm. northwest corner. Mm-hmm. And it's very beautiful and it's very rural and it's very white. Mm. Um, and that was um, a kind of something that we really needed to contend with raising, you know, raising a kid, you know, in the world, wanting him to be of the world and to experience diversity in every possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we do that in our, you know, on our hill? in our in our little town um in the middle of nowhere but yeah, we, we figured it out well that's, anyway mean, he went he went to what he went to wesleyan ultimately so yeah. he 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 figured himself out yeah 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 i mean travel is of course a great way but i i grew yeah. up in a suburb of uh of philly i'd never been to a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah until i moved to new york city and went to one of my friend's of kids uh-huh. you know oh. like i <laughs> so right. I, I think i was like, probably 30 by the time i went to my first or maybe older when yeah was and if you're one. if you're in seventh grade in new york city that is your social life for that's your calendar for the whole year, year. yeah yes. that's all that's going on that's yeah. funny so you went to sarah and lawrence college which is not far from the city just a little north mm-hmm. okay 
And then your first novel came out, uh, which I have, I've read other of your work. I have not read Playing with Fire, but that came out when you were in your late 20s. Yeah, that's, that's okay. You don't have to read that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wrote what became Playing with Fire at Sarah Lawrence. It was my MFA thesis while I was there. It's funny, just last week, I was back on campus for the first time in a very long time. They asked me to come back and be their writer in residence for a couple of days. And it was pretty surreal stepping back into this place where I, you know, was in the same workshop room where I workshopped pages of that first novel. Mm -hmm. Um, I was encouraged to, by one of my professors, I kept on writing the same short story over and over and over again. Um, I would try it in the first person, then I'd try it in the third person. I was I was like a dog with a bone with this story. Mm-hmm. And something about it just wasn't completely working. And at one point, I think in just total frustration, my professor wrote in the margin, I think it's on to the novel. <laughs> and I looked at this comment in total horror because I thought, I don't know how to write a novel. And also, there's a reason why so many short story collections and also essay collections come out of MFA programs because it's safer to write a story and workshop the story. And if the story isn't working, you can write another. Mm -hmm. If you devote the couple of years that you're there to writing one thing, then it's, 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 it's very high stakes, but. Is that an option? I've never been to an MFA. I don't really know much about it. Are you sort of given a choice of whether you're going to take on a novel as a huge chunk of your time there versus short stories? Um, any anyone in an, in an, a fiction MFA program would have that choice, but most people, at least in my experience, opted to stick with stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also don't. And this is something that I've thought about a lot because I write both fiction and nonfiction. They separate those genres. I mean, it's it's they're basically two different programs. Mm-hmm. And to my mind, I know why they do it. And it makes sense economically, and it makes sense for the university, and it probably makes sense in terms of keeping it all straight. But writers learn so much from each other and from mixing genres. And when I do teach, I really like mixing memoir writers and fiction writers, for example. I think Mm -hmm. it's all storytelling. And I think it elevates both forms to to learn the tactics of of each. but I, I didn't do that. And if you had told me back then when I was at Sarah Lawrence that I would ever write any memoirs, much less as many memoirs as I've written, <laughs> I would have thought that that was completely ludicrous. That, you know, I'll, I'll hold my follow-up questions on that for the process section because I do want to learn more about your process as it comes to fiction versus nonfiction and things like that. But So your first novel, um, Playing With Fire, was that then an expanded version of the short story from that program or was it a different story? But it, also began at that time. It came from the same seeds. Yeah. Um, I was, which is semi-autobiographical. It was semi-autobiographical. It taught me a great deal writing that book because when I began writing "Playing with Fire," I was only a couple of years away from a family tragedy. Um, my parents had been in a very bad car accident. I had dropped out of college. Um, I was taking care of my mother after my father died. Um, I had a very bad boyfriend. I was it, it, my my whole life was just chaos. It was a mess, um, and I was grief stricken. And um, you know the worst thing had happened, and in my family. And I, I when I returned to Sarah Lawrence, it was kind of with a, a vengeance. I mean, when I finally thought, all right, I guess the feeling I had was I want to do my father proud, mm. and 
you know, maybe in some metaphysical way, he'll be able to be proud of me. Or, you know, I, I would always ask myself at every turn, what would my father want me to do here? So for a long time, he sort of became my internal compass, um, my moral compass in a way, or my, my compass for w what my next steps were. And so when I got to Sarah Lawrence and returned, I wanted to write a novel that would it include this p chapter, this very painful chapter in my pa in my my family's life, and I ended up writing a novel in which that that should have been cut, it 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 should have been saved for a later date. I wasn't ready to write about that. I was way too close to it. It was way too hot for me, um, and the novel actually really began to take a life on of its own. And this friendship between these two young women, um, which began as fairly autobiographical material quickly took on a life of its own. And what it taught me was that the ima imagination really does have its own coherence if we follow it, if we allow it to develop and evolve on the page, and mm -hmm. we don't try to control it too much. And so that was really thrilling to me. Um, but I was committed to, I, I, I've said before that, you know, I could have written a novel that took place in, you know, Sri Lanka, and it still would have had a car, a car crash in Short Hills, New Jersey, because I was going to write about that car crash in Short Hills, New did Jersey. You have a, when you were writing it, did you have a sense of, man, I'm really close to this, maybe this isn't the right time, or you you were just writing it? I was just writing it. I, I It felt like a story that I, I had to find a way to process and make meaning out of, and the idea that I wouldn't be ready or that it was too soon wasn't something that I would have been able to articulate to myself mm -hmm. at the time. Who were you showing it to at the time? You had a teacher, but mm. did you show it to friends or, or family or anything? No, I didn't, I didn't really share it while I was writing it except with uh, some of my professors mm -hmm. and then people in my workshops while I was writing it. And I, I did end up having a couple of really remarkable professors who were incredibly uh, influential and important to me. Mm. But... The novel, which I sold while I was still at Sarah Lawrence, um, to a major publisher, wasn't ready. And so I, I think of it now as my first couple of novels, in a way, I was really learning how to write a novel, and I was doing it in, in public. And they were, they, were, they were pretty well received, but I, 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 wasn't, I, I wasn't ready. I didn't, I didn't know. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's like your raw talent is so high that mm. you could, I don't know, even though you say I wasn't ready, it wasn't as polished as it could be, then it, you know, but it, even without the polish and all that, it was. But that kind of impatience, and I, you know, I mean, some of my readers get really annoyed with me when I say don't read the first couple of novels. They're like, well, you know, like, <laughs> but I, I do, I live with them in, in this kind of uneasy mm -hmm. um, uh relationship to them and I've gone back to them for various reasons that we can talk about yeah. um to to reread to see kind of what I knew and what I didn't know when I was writing them um well, at, at the risk of getting too far ahead of ourselves because mm. I, I do want to talk about that stuff too but I'll, I'll just ask it now anyway what what would I find to be or how would you describe the differences in your like what is the polish what what makes you better now than in mm. that first one of the first couple I think I've become a much more distilled writer over the years. When I started out, I was so in love with language, and I still am. Um, but I, I remember one of my mentors saying to me, you know how to write a really beautiful sentence. You just need to make sure it means something. Mm. And, you know, once I took the dagger out of my chest, 
Um, I thought that is exactly right. I, I, I was a pianist growing up and the musicality of language, the rhythm of it, the cadence of it. Um, I was very focused on the music um, and, I, and I could let it sort of sweep me away. And I think in book after book, I've become a clearer, um, hopefully the language is beautiful, but I want the language to not get in the way. Um, I think of reading Virginia Woolf, who's one of my favorite um, uh, writers, and the way that to read her work is like looking through the clearest, calmest body of water at the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. And nothing is rippling, nothing is getting in the way, it's just absolute clarity. Um, and that has become much more my aim. And I used to, you know, if, if one metaphor was good, three were better. Let's string them all together. <laughs> Let's just it. And I, 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 I haven't done that in a long time, but no. that um, first novel is full of language like that. No, that, that's a beautiful way to describe it. I know. I mean, it reminds me of that Faulkner saying of kill your darlings. You know, you might have this sentence as a standalone that you love and it's beautiful and it's rhythmical, but is it pushing the story forward? Does it mean something to the story? And if it doesn't, you've got to kill it, unfortunately, as much as you may love it. Right, exactly. And if you're a writer who um, is a polish-as-you-go writer, which I am, sometimes that means that you're letting a lot go that might be polished and terrific in another context, but mm-hmm. doesn't belong in this piece So then work. you drag and save and I copy save. and paste it somewhere else and I do. file I have like great I have a, sentences I have a, that I, have I might a gra- I have a graveyard, <laughs> yeah. I have, yeah. I, I have an outtakes file. Yeah. Outtakes, nice. It makes it less painful to let chunks of work go because there's psychologically, I mean, in terms of process, the feeling is always, well, I can always go back and resurrect it. I can always go back and bring it back. If it really turns out that this is a mistake to cut this, I can go get it and find it again. And that's never once happened. All right. So this is great. We're going to pick that back up in a process section. Before we get there, I wanted to ask you about one of your nonfiction works, Inheritance, which I read and was blown away by, as was everybody. I mean, that that book was like a national sensation. And um, I I hope you can expand on it a little bit for listeners who may not have read it and describe a little bit of what happened. So it's nonfiction. It's sort of in the memoir category, of course. And um, one of the things I found fascinating about it is, you know, it has to do with new DNA technology, what we can do with technology, which of course has two sides of the coin there. It's there are opportunities to, I don't know, solve crimes and and find people, but there are also privacy issues with it, I, I suppose, as well. But can you take listeners through a little bit of, you know, what happened uh, in your life in that story? And we've already talked a bit about your dad. So it's, of yeah. Um, so in 2016, I took one of those DNA tests just for recreational purposes, really not even interested in um, the results. I did it because my husband was doing it too. It it so easily could not have happened. And when my results came back, I discovered that my father had not been my biological father. Um, And that in essence, I was the family secret. I had been writing about secrets in all of my books from that very first novel on through. Um, secrets and their corrosive power, secrets and their how they shape us, what they do to us. Um, and I could have given you all sorts of reasons why I thought I wrote about those things, but I was missing the biggest reason of all. Um, so my, I very quickly was able to understand, um, and it didn't take very many steps, 
uh, that my parents had had trouble conceiving me and had used a sperm donor, um, which at the time that they conceived me and throughout a lot of our time, you know, in, in um, the last, you know, hundred years since, I mean, a hundred years ago, sperm donation was happening. Um, it's, people think of it as a newer thing, but it's, 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 it's not that new at all. Um, that people were told, never tell anyone, keep, this is a secret, no one will ever know. Mm-hmm. Um, donors were told, you will never be discovered. You know, you're just a code. You know, there's no names, there's no identifying details. And in your case, your biological father also donated, but it would go into like a, I don't know, like a group of potential uh, donors so, who it might have been. So th- that was their sort of way of masking it in a way, which was... Well, they did a lot to try to um, soften the process. Mm-hmm. Um for the sake of the father's ego, you know, the, the intended father and, um, male infertility in general, but male infertility in particular was, um, taboo. So taboo. It was such a, such a shameful thing to admit to having that it was never admitted to. And doctors didn't even test men for infertility. If a couple came in having trouble to conceive, they would run all sorts of invasive tests on the woman and they would not look at the man's sperm under a microscope. Mm So. What this was called, and I, I didn't know any of this when I first started trying to understand literally the story of my existence, um, it was called confused artificial insemination, or CAI for short. And what it what it was was they would use the intended father's sperm. They would say, you know, they would ask the intended intended father for sperm and a donor, and they would mix together that sperm with the idea it's sort of like the firing squad where only one only one guy has the bullet in his gun <laughs> it's 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 deniability yeah. it's i'll never really know we'll never really know and somehow that was thought of as a um a positive thing to but, never really although know. of course in your case the other donor looked nothing like anyone in your family trace so you come out the blonde-haired blue-eyed yeah. child where everyone your whole life is saying Boy, you don't look like the rest of the family very yes. much. Yes, I mean, every day of my life that was that was said to me in one way or another, or it was said to me that I didn't look. I mean, I I was raised in a, in a Jewish family, and um, my parents, as far as I knew, were both, you know, Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews from the old country, and um, and I, uh, in a great stroke of irony, I really do look very, very much like my biological father, the sperm donor, mm-hmm. very, very much like him, not like my mother. And not like my dad, who wasn't my biological father. Yeah. So, you know, one might say, didn't you ever, did you ever question that at all? Um, but I never did, not consciously. Yeah. And I don't want to give away too much of the book, because people who have not yet read it really should. But the way you sleuth out and discover your biological father, you know, via, you know, you, you kind of get there and, and watch videos of him on YouTube giving speeches and things like that is just unreal and it's an unreal read i mean is anyone who gets this book will read it in one night you will not you will not sleep um it just reads like this crazy novelistic thing and you're like oh my god this happened to danny shapiro this is what happened it's amazing well and to say something about process it's i had to learn how to slow down that story in mm-hmm. writing it um because i was writing it very much in real time as i was living it um which i have always cautioned students not to do um you know you're too close to the you know i learned from my own experience of you know it's it's good to have a kind of ironic 
remove or enough of a remove from a story that has kind of gone cold on you so that you can um, be clear. Mm -hmm. um, and I wasn't writing it from a place of great clarity. I was doing a huge amount of research. Right. Um, but it was um, the feeling that it was almost this like is, journaling for you in a way. It was like, this is what happened today, I suppose. You well, know. I started writing that way. I wrote 200 pages of that, and that ended up in my outtakes folder. <laughs> because that doesn't make a book. I had to find a way to shape the story and to slow down the freight train of this story. I mean, f for me, I had been writing my previous book to Inheritance. is a memoir called Hourglass, and it's a very... Um, it has a really kaleidoscopic structure to it, very puzzle-like, very mosaic-like. And I had become fond of saying and thinking that I had broken up with narrative, that I was no longer interested in writing straightforward narrative. And then this story that was nothing but straightforward narrative, that was a, really a freight train of a story, came crashing into my life. And I had to figure out a way to tell it in a, um, in a, in a way that wouldn't read breathlessly. Mm -hmm. um, I had to actually think about how to do that. Um, and I also had to think about what was universal in the story because not everybody has had this experience. And in, in memoir, well, you, you know, nailed you that because everyone can relate to what you were saying. It's just, it's a feeling of identity and family and wait that, a minute, that was that's my not goal. what I thought it, it's, you know, everything I thought is not how it, I, I had always assumed it to be. That was my, that I, I, I found myself asking the question, what is universal about this story? And mm -hmm. I thought identity, family, what makes a father a father? What makes a family yeah. a family? Um, why do we feel other? Um, and what mitigates that otherness. I really actually had to bring those questions front and center into my mind mm -hmm. in a way that I haven't had to do in other memoirs because the material in other memoirs was much more easily relatable. I, you know, if I were to say to you, my, as I did, my father died in a car accident, I don't have to help you to understand what that might feel like. Mm -hmm. um, if I were to say, my son was very sick as a baby. I don't have to help you to understand what it would feel like to be the parent of a sick child. Mm -hmm. But if I were to say to you, I found out that my father, who I adored, who died when I was 23, wasn't my biological father. And in fact, there's this guy who's a you know, retired doctor who was a medical student who donated sperm you know, on the campus of University of Pennsylvania, you know, and, and, and that's my biological father. And he's been walking around the world all these years. I could have passed him in an airport. Um, that's hard to, you know, I'd have to reimagine re my whole history in a way, yeah. right? That's not quote unquote relatable in the easy to relate to way. And it's the job of the writer to find the universal thread mm -hmm. in any story, no matter how distant from the reader's experience it might be. So let's get into process things. That is my next section. And, um, I wonder if you can compare and contrast your book. As you say, it's all storytelling, but can you compare and contrast your approach, whether you're doing fiction or nonfiction or even screenwriting? Maybe, maybe a way into this is to look at how you would handle Inheritance, which is the name of the book, the memoir we've been talking about, for a screen. I, I know you and your husband, who's a talented screenwriter, are looking at maybe doing a screen, a book-to-film version of Inheritance. Is there a difference in how you would try to get that story across in a different format? Oh, absolutely. And I should say, actually, Inheritance is in development. And um, my husband is writing the screenplay, and there's a director. 
wonderful director attached, and um, and I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you he, just lived it. He you lived it. You, you're done now. He comes down from his office sometimes at the end of the day, and he gives me a big hug, and I'm like, oh, you're working on the screenplay. Uh. I can feel it. Um, it's It's actually a very complicated book to adapt because there are all these different time frames, and you can't you can't take i mean adaptation means kind of exploding what's there and recreating it in another art form um i'm doing that right now i'm doing the television adaptation for um for signal fires and i have to completely go outside of the pages of my book and expand and imagine these lives and um and also it's it's a it's a much more it's it's visual storytelling it has very little to do with language, mm-hmm. writing a screenplay. Do you feel like you can accomplish as much? Is it going to be a sliver of the books, or is it going to be just a reimagined different thing? I, I'm picturing like Mike TV from Willy Wonka. Like you've got to explode them, and then he's going to reform over there in the box, like uh, like Mike TV t- yeah, teleporting. No, I, like, I like that. It it's um, it's definitely not going to be a sliver of the book. I I think and hope that what it will do is capture the essence. Of the book, but you know, good books sometimes make bad movies. Bad books make good movies. Uh, it's 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 not about being faithful to the book, and right. I feel that way even with Inheritance. Um, I understand that. I mean, we even had a conversation. My mother has been um, gone for quite a long time now, and so my parents were both not alive when I made the discovery about my father. Um, we even had conversations like, should the mother be alive? Um, and I, I'm willing to go there because it's a different art form. It's, mm. it's a, would that be dramatically more interesting or maybe even really interesting to imagine? Because I've wondered many times what that conversation would, would, would have been. Um, so you're entering a little bit more into the realm of fiction there. But again, I'm not the one doing the writing. So are you consulting, producing, or, or completely removed from the the process inheritance yeah i'm i'm pretty removed from the process um i and i i I want to be i think it's chances for um a good outcome or better without me um gumming up the works in a way as Mm. the person whose story this is and the book and i always say this to writers whose work is being adapted the book is the book you know when when revolutionary road which is one of my favorite novels came out as a film and it was a good film but i would see people in the bookstore like looking at the tie-in paperback version and 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 saying i think i'm just going to go watch the movie <laughs> and i was like no no this i'll buy different. it for you yeah. you know <laughs> you need to you need it. to yeah. read this book and yeah. and and the book remains the book uh, no matter what and yeah. it's a separate and i think thing. Yeah. And, and i think films bring many more readers to Two books ultimately. I mean, well, look, you put the uh, the handsome mug of Leonardo DiCaprio on your book jacket, and good go. things are going to happen. He was the Revolutionary Road actor, yes. right? I have that yep. right. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, sticking with the novel for for the moment on process, what is the first thing you think about in terms of is it a character, a theme, a place? And just as a lead into this question, I will tell you, your friend and and uh, mine, Jenny Egan, says she starts with place. So maybe you can either say, mm. uh, critique her answer, uh, or, or, you know, sort of discuss her answer and, and answer with your own. It's different for me with each book. Mm. I have one novel that started with place 
or rather, I kept on circling around these characters and this idea and this relationship and a few things that I thought I knew, and it kept on eluding me. I mean, it eluded me for a really long time. Um, it was a mother and a daughter, and I imagined them in somewhere in the country, in the countryside, and they had been estranged, but I didn't really know the source of the estrangement, and mm -hmm. the daughter had come home because the mother was dying. Mm -hmm. And I just kept on thinking, who cares? And this like sounds like a Hallmark movie, and something about it wasn't. I wasn't I wasn't gripped by it yet, but it also wouldn't let me go. Mm -hmm. And then one day I was driving into New York and my husband was driving and I was in the passenger seat and we were on the West Side Highway. And all of a sudden I thought, oh, it takes place on the Upper West Side. And the mother, they live on the top floor of the Apthorpe, um, which is a building on, mm -hmm. you know, 80 or 70, 79th and um, Broadway. Broadway. Yeah. Um, and it's a rent-controlled apartment, and the mother is a photographer who's had this apartment for a really long time. And the reason for the estrangement is that the daughter was her mother's subject. And my obsession with the work of Sally Mann just came, like, roaring back into my mind, and Sally Mann was a photographer who photographed her, her now, own children. as you're having this moment in the car, are you frantically writing notes? Like, my God, if I don't write this down right now, it's going to be I gone. did that that morning. I don't remember whether I did it in the car, but certainly that morning... When I got to town, I made a whole bunch of notes, and mm -hmm. I had a drinks date with my literary agent that evening, and I remember meeting her and and just saying, like, I don't usually do this either, um, but just sort of saying, I, what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. And she's like, I love that so much, and just had that kind of immediate burst of, this feels right. And that was, that that was characters in search of a place mm -hmm. and then once they were in the place that they belonged the book could you could have begin you, you to had be. the atmosphere right you had it all had it all going and yeah. new york city was a big character in mm -hmm. in in that novel which is called black and white um more often for me it begins with characters and some some little like an oh, it's visual it it's um like in Signal Fires, it was two characters meeting uh, across across the street from each other, meeting under this ancient oak tree. Mm -hmm. That an old an older man and a young boy. Um, in my novel Family History, I had a character who was lying in bed watching home movies in the middle of the day, and and I and and she, she was something had happened, mm -hmm. and I didn't know what, but I wanted to find out. So that. And and the only the only process um, that has not like really really not been helpful is coming up with a big idea and then deciding to write a book about that idea. I mean, I it, my my books don't start with ideas. Mm. They they start in a much more granular way, like a feeling and a yeah, you know. it's a feeling, an image, a um, a bit of dialogue, a um, a, a sense, and then. The ideas that's em probably better. Emerge. Be too soapboxy if you're like, here's the point I'm going to make with this novel. Everyone's like, oh, next. Yeah, it's <laughs> not. I mean, I, 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 I can't even talk to you about my own themes um, mm. until long after, um, until long after book after book after book has been written. I think, oh, I really do write about that a lot, don't I? Mm. Or um, metaphor is a great. Um, is, is, is something interesting, I think, um, about all this. Um, if you're writing fiction and
and you're sitting there and thinking to yourself, oh man, this is a really great metaphor. I love this metaphor. You are inevitably writing a terrible metaphor because, <laughs> because it's self-conscious yeah. and self-consciousness um, just has no place in, in the creative process. Whereas if you're writing a memoir and you come up with something from your life that feels like it's an interesting symbol or metaphor, that's actually part of the work of memoir is, is identifying the metaphors in your own life. Mm-hmm. Can I give you an example? Um, so my, my memoir, Hourglass, once I finally figured that out, um, I wrote the word woodpecker down on a, on, a, on a piece of paper. And there was a woodpecker that was atta- attacking our house in the country, ruining the siding, ruining, you know, ru- ruining the wood every day, peck, peck, peck. And I realized that the woodpecker was both actually a woodpecker who was doing that and a metaphor for the attrition and decay and the impossibility of keeping everything perfect all the time. And I was writing about my marriage and my, my very happy, contented marriage, long marriage. Um, I had been possessed by this sentence of Wendell Berry's that he wrote in an essay called On Poetry and Marriage, where Berry writes about the troubles of duration. And I knew I wanted to write about that, like the troubles of duration, the beauty of duration, the complexity of duration. And then I've got this little woodpecker dude pecking away at the side of my house. And I thought, like, that is perfect. And the book pretty much opens with the woodpecker, who returns three different times over the course of over the course of the book. But if I were writing a novel and I was like, I think that I want to write about the troubles of duration. So I am mm-hmm. going to create a woodpecker to peck away at the side <laughs> of the house. It would be a very different feel, uh, inorganic. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, as you were talking about themes too, I, it was reminded me of a conversation with Anna Quinlan, who was on the show. And she was saying that her son was taking a writing class. And I, I'd have to go back and listen to be sure. But I think her son was taking a, a writing class with Amy Bloom, who said in that class that every writer writes about one thing. And so he comes back and says, Mom, you write about one thing and it's motherhood. And which, which she kind of liked that, but she also thought, well, you know, she hadn't thought about this, by the way. To, to your point, it's like, I don't know my themes until after I've written 10 books or something. But in retrospect, she thought back, like, it's either, it could be that or it's love or both. She's like, maybe I write about two things. It could be motherhood and love, mm. but those were her, mm. her things. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
Ever been to Delaware? If not, now's the time to visit. You'll find a lot of fun in a little state. Since you can drive anywhere in the state in a couple of hours, you'll spend less time driving and more time enjoying. Explore from the bays to the beaches, stroll the boardwalks, and have an oceanside bonfire. Get a taste of Delaware at one of the award-winning restaurants and enjoy a local craft brew. See the first state's unique historic landmarks and experience Delaware's endless discoveries. Plan your adventure today at visitdelaware.com. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start Start saving saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. But back to to, uh, to process here. So when you have your spark, you have your woodpecker or, or whatever the spark is to start something out, your thoughts about the Apthorpe, do you then outline? I don't. You go in. I you go in. Start in. I go in. And I mean, for me, outlining would kill it because then I would know where I was going or at least think I would know where I was going. And I don't think in writing fiction that it's possible to know where you're going. And if you um, kind of commit to that, then you're eliminating the possibility of being surprised along the way or changing your mind or, you know, Mm -hmm. your, your, your characters. I mean, to me, my characters are very, very alive and vivid for me when I'm writing fiction and um, I'm not really in charge of them Mm -hmm. and I don't want to be. I have a character in, in, in signal fires, my recent novel who a lot of people, readers don't really like this guy, and I understand why. Um, he's not a good dad. He is, um, he's kind of full of rage, um, but he's actually really trying. And I felt great compassion for him as I was writing the novel, and I would be there, and I, I know it sounds so sort of strange and counterintuitive, but because after all, I, I created him. He doesn't exist in the world, and he is my invention. His name is Shankman. And he would be doing something that wasn't so great or being mean to his son. And I'd be sitting there writing the scene and thinking, oh, Shankman, (laughs) you can do better. Come on, Shankman, do better. And I could make Shankman do better. I mean, I'm in charge. I'm Shankman's boss. I'm the novelist. But I I couldn't because Mm -hmm. that was his. Your your own reaction is sort of what you're delivering to the reader, like, yeah, yes. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. You know, with, with the no outline thing, I, I do outline. And it's interesting on this show, it's probably, I don't know if it's 50-50, but there's lots of both. One of the reasons I outline, though, is it eases me onto page one because otherwise the stakes are so, there are no stakes in writing an outline. I can write down whatever I want. It's not, you know, it's just an outline. I'll scratch it out and whatever. But then I go to page one, I've got like this outline to reinforce me and a sort of sense of, what I'm going to do next. So, so you literally was like signal fires, page one, off I go. Yes. Or maybe you don't have the title in the beginning. It no, comes later, I didn't have I guess, the title but... until I had the entire manuscripts and I still didn't have the title. Um, yeah, it is. Um, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the blank page before there's anything resembling like a nice 
chunky pile of pages that starts to feel like maybe this is a book mm-hmm. is incredibly daunting. And I have all sorts of ways of figuring out end runs around my own um, terror and my inner sensor um, and ways to kind of get my butt in the chair and stay there and um, really essentially be in the boat and building the boat all, you know, in the middle of the ocean, no land in sight, building the boat, building the boat, building yeah. the boat. Um, so I really understand the the desire to outline and the, you know, the thing about process is process as a writer, um, you, you, you learn your process over the course of a writing life. I mean, it becomes, it's the most, it's such an intimate thing. Um, you can't, you can talk to another writer about your process or my process, but I couldn't do your process and you couldn't do my process. I mean, yeah. I'm married to a writer. He, he's a very messy writer. He'll write and he'll write in the middle of the night and he'll write all, you know, all hours of the day and he'll, um, he'll just kind of scribble things down. Um, and I polish as I go, as I said, mm-hmm. and, um, I, I, I will sometimes ask like an audience or a group full of, of, of students, um, there, we can divide pe- people generally into people who make their beds in the morning and people who don't. <laughs> right? And I, I do show, shows of hands with audiences, and it's really interesting. It's about 50-50. Mm-hmm. Some people can totally leave their house with their bed unmade, and they will not think about their unmade bed for the rest of the day. It won't make them nervous. Others need to make their bed as soon as they wake up in the morning. Um, and others still, like one student of mine raised her hand and she said, I make my bed in hotels. <laughs> it's like, okay, you win. Man, that's the last I, place I would do it. Well, exactly. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a bed maker. Um, my husband could totally not, you know, he mm-hmm. could go a week probably without making his bed. Um, this relates to like the sort of messiness and neatness of writing or the um, outlining. I mean, I, to, write a, to write a script, to go back to screenwriting, you have to outline. That's funny. You know, with the bed making thing, I'm, you didn't describe my category. I'm somewhere in the middle. I, I make my bed when it's like I'm sending a message to myself and the day, like I'm yeah. going to get it after I mean today. business. I'm and, making the bed and yeah. it's on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and game then other on. days I'm like, I cannot be bothered today. I'm tired. I'm distracted. It's not happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's ritual, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I have a poet friend who lights a candle when she means business and she's getting to work. Um, uh, other people, like they take themselves somewhere. They have an office, you know, gate to lease, put on a suit every morning and like when, you know, goes downstairs to his, you know, his, his, um, his writing his, his, table. His writing yeah. table. Um, everybody has, you know, Jenny Egan famously has her, you know, seven longhand pages a day, doesn't stop until she has a draft. Um, it's, you, you learn so much about who you are and what works for you not just as a writer, but as a human being. Um, do you do your best work in the morning? Do you do your best work in the middle of the night? Do you need absolute silence? Um, uh, can you write on the subway? Uh, yeah. um, do you write in bursts, like in a kind of like- Like the fever manic, dream. Fever yeah. dream or, or methodical, steady as you go kind of work. Well, this, this is a good segue into your writer's conference because you must meet all sorts of writers, you know, Big way. So you have guests there like Anthony Doerr, Meg, Meg Wolitzer has been there. So you and your husband co-founded a writer's conference in Positana, Italy, which I just was there two years ago with my family. It's 
one of the most gorgeous places, and unlike any place in the world, these cliffs that go into the water. And but what what can a attendee uh, expect to, uh, mm. when coming to your conference? So our tagline for Siren Land, which is the name of the conference, is um, it's about the work. We don't have agents. I can't tell you how many agents have asked to come. Mm. We don't have editors. It's not about... Is it invitation only or are you it's, sort of... Um, it's by application. Okay. So it's pretty competitive to get in, but it's not about whether someone's a published writer or um, where somebody is in their career on any level. We have... I mean, so listeners know, could, it, could an unpublished writer, but you know, maybe has a couple things in the bottom drawer, but they've never been published, could they come? Would they submit a writing sample Absolutely, or something? Absolutely, yeah. So the application is a writing sample and a statement of purpose. Okay. And the statement of purpose is as important as the writing sample because we are bringing 40 writers to Positano to this intimate, um, beautiful setting where we're going to spend a week together and we're looking for people who have a generosity of spirit and who are serious about um, doing the work, who are looking for community. Um, so the statement of purpose is super important. Um, and and it, the, the work speaks for itself. Uh, you could be a published writer and sent, turn in a piece of work that doesn't, or a statement of purpose that isn't, um, sort of doesn't feel right, and then, then that person won't, you know, won't get in that year. Mm -hmm. um, but you could be someone who's is just starting out. an example of statement of purpose, like... Other than I want to be a bestseller, like what? What is it? Ah, uh, you see, that would be a bad statement. Right. Of purpose. <laughs> what, what is a good one? Um, in interest hand. in, um, I guess, I guess in just just describing what the writer is looking for in the way of community, what what they have to offer, um, what their reasons are for wanting to um, attend a conference like this. Mm -hmm. It's um, I think we're looking for sincerity and generosity and kindness and um, a sense of who the per who the person is. And then, are you leading discussions? Are you personally leading some discussions daily, or what? What is a day in the life of the conference? Look so, like? so we we have forty students. Um, that means that there are four workshops that are held each morning, each with ten students, and then the faculty changes a bit every year and remains the same. Also, so I teach most years. Um, our dear friend Hannah Tinty, who my husband and I founded the um, conference with, she's um, a great novelist and story writer and also editor of One Story magazine, mm -hmm. um, which is one of our great small journals. And um, Hannah sometimes teaches, sometimes doesn't. Um, the great novelist and short story writer Jim Shepard teaches at Sirenland a lot. Um, he started coming um, maybe th our third or fourth year, and our kids are the same age, and his wife Karen is a writer, and um, they, they've just, the shepherds have been part of the Siren Land for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then we revolve. So um, this coming year, Mira Jacob is going to be teaching. Last year, um, who was there last year? I mean, in the last several years, uh, Jenny Finney Boylan. Um, Susan Choi was there last year. Um, Tony Dorr taught. Uh, uh, Rick Russo taught there. Mm -hmm. I mean, Meg has been there twice. Um, Susan Orlean. Uh, we look for writers 
writer in faculty, we look for writers who are great writers and great teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, you know, we, we didn't know what we were doing, Doug. I mean, we, <laughs> that, siren, creating a writer's conference was not on my bucket list. I mean, if you had told me 20 years ago, you're going to have a writer's conference, I, no, no, no. I, it, sound, it would sound like a headache and a nightmare and a huge responsibility mm-hmm. um, and an administrative. You it know, must be. Like, I mean, how far out in advance do you start planning each year? Each year, there's something going on all year long. Not a lot, but, you know, when applications open, there's stuff that goes on. Yeah. Then the applications come in and there's stuff that goes on. Then there's the actual, you know, choosing the faculty. Um, and then it culminates in this in this week at this so the 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 origin story is that um we were invited to a dinner party in Connecticut where we live at the home of um a woman named Nancy Novograd who's the was at the time the editor in chief of Travel and Leisure and she um is a good friend and she um wrote to me and she said my favorite hotel owners in the world are coming to dinner and i thought who who would the favorite who are the favorite hotel owners in the world for the editor-in-chief of Travel and Leisure? That's fascinating. And it was uh, Antonia and Carla Sersale who own this hotel, La Sierra News, in Positano. La Sierra News. Oh, so I was just in Positano. It's like, it was very crowded when I was there. I think mm-hmm. we were in, in we June. Were in, and, yeah, yeah. But the beaches were crowded. And you go up these tiny little walkways. Are they near the water? They, it's all sort of centered you, around you, this like you go dock up, where the You go up the walkways. Come. You yeah. walk up from the beach. And you get to uh, Via uh, Christophe Colombo, which is the um the main drag mm-hmm. um and there are a few little shops and and then you'll see the entrance of lasira news um which just it's lovely but it you you have no idea what's behind those doors mm-hmm. and then you go inside and it's this formerly um it was the the family's villa mm-hmm. they are an old neapolitan family and some of the family came up to the, this villa during the war and stayed, and then eventually turned it into this magnificent hotel. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the views are of oh, I can only imagine the what you described the 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 cliffs going into the sea, and um, so you have this you have this environment where it's so um, it's so conducive to the creative process for so many reasons. One is it's a very very warm place. It's very welcoming. Um, the people who work there have worked there for decades and decades and decades, and they remember every single person mm. who's been there. And if you're there for one day and you have you have a soft-boiled egg in the morning, in the next morning you come down <laughs> and Pepe will say to you, you know, good morning, uh, uh, would, you, would, you, would you like your soft-boiled egg today? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's you feel deeply nurtured. Yes, it's very luxurious, but it's not about the luxury. It's about the love. Mm-hmm. And And then, so each morning there's a workshop. It's like three hours long. And then people are free in the afternoon. People bond like crazy. Yeah. We have marriages that have come out of conference. Wow. Multi- How many years have you been doing it? 15, 16. Wow. Multiple marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so many friendships and people who meet as writers together and have formed incredibly strong bonds yeah. that began there. And that, I couldn't have predicted that. You know, that was, that's the surprise. That's, mm-hmm. you know, for me... Like we didn't, we didn't create this. Like this is how we're going to do this, and this is what we're hoping to accomplish. We just brought some writers over to Italy for one year, and then it grew, and it, and grew. it grew, and it grew, and then we also stopped it from growing any further because we wanted it to be 
to feel intimate and to feel really special. Yeah. All right. So listeners know it's spelled S-I-R-E-N-L-A-N-D. Sirenland? Sirenland. Yeah. Yeah. Check it out. That actually, sounds amazing. Um, and if nothing else, you're in Positano. My God. Yeah. Everything's better in Positano. So uh, before... Oh, wait. Before Two things I want to get to before we get to the lightning round. One is your podcast, Family Secrets. So it started in 2019, which is like, in you know, podcast land is like dog years. This is like a 30-year-old podcast now. It's true. It's <laughs> so true. going on very successful. Um, tell us about that before we, before we move on. So in, in, in the department of happy accidents, or again, not on my bucket list, um, I would put Sirenland and Family Secrets as two very surprising turns that my life took that, you know, weren't in the plan. And so with Family Secrets, um, I had made this discovery about my dad. I had written Inheritance. Uh, it was still in manuscript. And people were starting to hear what it was about. And when they would hear what it was about, they started telling me their secrets. Right. Um, in fact, I think that they actually already had been. I'm somebody that people have tended to confide in. Um, and, you know, I, I wondered why. I mean, I, I, I appreciated being trusted and, you know, as someone who would keep a secret. Um, but when inheritance was in the pipeline, I gave it to a dear friend of mine to read, you know, before it was in book form. And her name is Sylvia Borstein, and she is now 87 years old, but she was, you know, so she was what, like 80 ish. Um, she's a Buddhist mindfulness teacher, famous, brilliant teacher. Um, and she read inheritance and we were on the phone. She lives in the Bay area and she, it prompted her to tell me the story of a family secret of hers. And it was a great story. She's a great storyteller. And when we got off the phone, I thought to myself, and it really went like this. I thought, I wish more people could hear this story. It's a beautiful story. And then I thought, podcast. I wonder if there's a podcast about family secrets. And I wasn't a huge podcast listener. I mean, I live in the country, so I drive around. So I do listen to podcasts a little bit. But I never once thought, oh, I want to have one, or how do you make one, or what is it? Um, but in my publisher, there's a small department that develops authors' ideas about other things. And um, I went to them and I said, I, I, this may be a crazy idea, but let's have coffee. Just love to talk to you about this. And within five minutes, I started pitching this idea of a podcast called Family Secrets. And um, these two uh, editors in this department were reaching into their bags and taking out their phones and making notes. And they got really excited. Yeah, we're and then, onto something. And they yeah. put me together with iHeart. And that's how it started. And it was, it, it is forever ago in, in podcast land. Yeah. Um, and there wasn't another show, not only about family secrets, but much less called family secrets. And I wanted it to be a, a storytelling podcast. I really wanted, and I wanted as the host, actually in a way that I think might resonate with you. It's like, me too. You know, like you're a writer, I'm a writer, we're talking shop. I wanted, um, I wanted my guests to feel like me too. I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not here as a journalist. I'm not here like rubbernecking on the highway of your, your crazy story. I'm here to hold your story and contain your story. And, um, let's, right. and, yeah. and figure out be how. respectful to it. And, absolutely. And yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, 
and then created a you know pretty highly produced show that has a lot of voiceover and you know, tries tries to kind of um, yeah hold the story. And you can do it from your kids' playroom, your now-grown kids' playroom. Yeah, just go downstairs. (laughs) Um, All right, so before we get to lightning round, we have to talk a little bit about signal fires. And the quick story I told you when you first got here, I had a story about this, because John Stossel was on the show almost a year ago, and he's he's an old friend and is, is a journalist and author. And the night before he came on the show, I was up late because I was finishing signal fires. It was so good, so I didn't sleep that much before his show. And then when we got into his lightning round, I, the question that you will soon have was, book or books you're reading now? And he goes, well, I just finished a book I loved called Signal Fires. And I'm oh. like, oh, my God, I just finished that last night myself. So I love that. Yeah. Um, I, it was great. Um, you took on a complex structure. I mean, you, you moved time periods around, and, and you really achieved something with it because you would be able to – reveal or, or explain secrets in this really powerful way as it unfolds. Um, tell us a bit about Signal Fires, which is now, I think, just out in paperback recently and um, was a huge bestseller and a, and a great, great book. Thank you. I, I so, that book was really hard one for me. I started it a long time ago and I could not figure out how to tell the story. Um, at that, I was thinking of it when I said, you know, I think a, a way in which you, at least I can't write a novel is beginning with a big idea. I had a big idea, and the big idea was, here's this group of characters. I, the characters were very clear to me, but I wanted to tell their story backward in time. That's what I was going to do, and I was committed to that. And I wrote about 100 pages, and I reached a point where, if I went any further backward in time, one of my favorite characters, who had just been born, wouldn't be alive yet. And Somehow that that had not occurred to me in writing a hundred pages. It had not occurred to me that I would reach a point where I would run out of runway. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason why novels really are so rarely structured that way, because that's what happens. Um, So I put it away for a long time. And when I returned to it, it's like I had lived all the life that I needed to, to finally know how to tell their story. and. They had kind of been in this deep freeze waiting for me. I think of it now as waiting for me to deserve them because I wasn't, I wasn't ready yet. There was just life I hadn't lived yet. And my, the depth of my understanding of what it is to hold a secret, to keep a secret, and what it does to you, I didn't know as much about that 15 years ago as I know now. And the, you know, one of the main characters is a, a doctor um, in, in name, named Ben, who's in his early 60s. When I started that book, I thought of him as old. And when right. I returned to it, I was like, that's not 80 old. 80 is the new 60. Yeah. Right, <laughs> right. Um, and another character named Waldo, who was 11 when I started it, um, when I rediscovered the pages and I thought, I'm going to add a sliver of 2020 to this book because now that's where, I thought, who, who would he be now? Oh, he'd be a college student. Um, who would Ben be? Who would who would all these? Ca- and so I, I suddenly sort of had all of them within my grasp, and I I was able to fully release myself from this That's big idea. You almost that had to I had live through with. chunks of the timeline yourself. I really to... did. I really did. You know, people keep saying, you know, do you do you have another one of those in a drawer? That you could, like... <laughs> in thirty years, I might. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. No, that was that was oh, the that's one. Funny. 
Um, you know, I didn't, I had notes on signal fires, which I don't have right in front of me, but I feel like I read inheritance and signal fires pretty close together. And I feel like there was a family name and inheritance that showed up in signal fires as one of the neighbor families. Am I crazy? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, no, I think you're probably not crazy. I often use the names of families I grew up with, um, in, in, in certain books. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, and another very strange mysterious parallel between those two books is that um, my biological father, who I meet and, you know, I, I, I find, as we talked about, very, very quickly after I discover through the DNA test um, and I meet, I name him, I give him a pseudonym in the memoir, and the pseudonym is, is Benjamin Walden. Um, and, and the man I refer to as Benjamin Walden is a doctor. He's in his late 70s. He, uh, when I meet him, he um, actually has a specialty in pulmonology. Um, he looks a certain way. He talks a certain way. He acts a certain way. I, in, okay. So when I wrote the first hundred pages of Signal Fires, I had not yet met the man I call Ben Walden. I did not know I had a different biological father from my dad. Um, could have passed a poly, did not know. Um, and when I returned to Signal Fires, I finished the book. I never thought, oh, it's funny. His name is Ben Wolf. I named Ben Walden to Ben W. Hmm. Did not do that on purpose. Didn't even register that I was doing that. Hmm. Um, but more than that, when I finished Signal Fires, I gave it to my son, who's a great reader and I've started. It's such a pleasure for me. He's 24 now. It's such a pleasure for me that I can give him work to read yeah. and that he's really good at that. And it's just such a joy. So I'd given him the manuscript and he came into my office and he was holding the manuscript and he just said, mom, he's just like him. And chills went through my body. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you are right. He is. He is. He, he, it's not just, I mean, it's, it's got nothing to do with the name. He's a doctor. He's the same medical specialty. He looks like him. He sounds like yeah, him. Yeah. He has a quality that's very similar to him. And it's as if I, I mean, so one, that's so interesting because I, I didn't realize that inheritance was sandwiched between your beginning and end of signal yes. fires. I thought it was sequential because right. I was seeing that. I thought that it was that it was yeah, you know, in some a, way conscious or purposeful. Yeah, but no. it, maybe there's something through the universe or through the genes well, or something. That's the. Yeah. That's the extraordinary thing. I mean, I, I think that readers who read Inheritance and then read Signal Fires and don't know that story mm -hmm. would be very reasonable to think, um, oh, I see how that happened. Mm -hmm. But no, he was a fully formed character. The first hundred pages of Signal Fires that you read are, with a few exceptions and tweaks, almost identical, and none that have to do with Ben Walden, almost identical, I mean, Ben Wilf, identical mm -hmm. to... Um, what ended up in the book. Wow, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. The unconscious is a powerful thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that powerful note, we'll, we'll leap into the lightning round here. Your favorite book as a kid. Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom, who that's I'm great. actually getting to um, be in conversation with on my book tour. I'm, I'm visiting her, 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 her. She has a little bookstore in Key West. Oh, that's great. And, and she's interviewing me, which is just such a treat. Oh, that's, that's treat. fantastic. Yeah. Oh, congrats. Uh, it was fun when things like that come full circle, you know, when you yeah. come out on a on a tour. I remember yeah. like just 
the last book I read before I wrote my first book was Nelson DeMille's Gold Coast, which I just loved and kind of connected with that book. And then I got I met him later, which was fun. It's book or books you're reading now? One book I'm really loving is a sort of hybrid memoir called The Comfort of Crows by Margaret Rankle. Margaret is a opinion writer for The Times who writes a lot about nature. Um, she lives in Nashville. She's a really beautiful, almost um, has a kind of... Sp- a spiritual element to her writing um, and also um, heartbreakingly beautiful on um, nature and erosion and mm-hmm. um, highly recommend. And, um, and another, another book that I recently finished is a memoir titled Everything, Nothing, Someone by Alice Carrier. Um, Alice grew up the daughter of a painter in the, who was very famous in the 70s and 80s named Jennifer Bartlett. Mm-hmm. And she had an extremely complicated, deeply privileged and deeply disturbed childhood. And she's just a magnificent writer. And the book is such a triumph. Oh, cool. I will check that out. Favorite few recent TV shows to recommend to listeners? I'm not sure how recent they are. They're recent to me. Um, we binge watched um, a, a show called The Seaside Hotel. Um, that takes place in Denmark. It has many seasons, um, and it's set in pre-war um, Denmark in this group of um, Danes who summer together uh, every summer at the seaside hotel, um, so get to know each other in that way, um, not necessarily like each other. Complicated relationships ensue. It also has this, um, the people who work at the seaside hotel and own it, our characters and and then these people who 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 show up there, but it's it's what makes it so compelling is it's set in pre-war Denmark, mm-hmm. and so the the viewer and I love I love shows like this. The viewer can feel the impending doom that the characters have no idea is coming. Yeah, yeah. Now that's an interesting thing. Like that shadow, you know, that that storm cloud is on the mm-hmm. way. All right, here's a, here's a show favorite, the least attended book event ever. I love talking about that. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you know, war stories. Yeah. Um, for a novel of mine uh, years ago, I was in a bookstore on the West Coast. Um, I, was, I was on tour, um, and I think it was for my novel, Black and White, and I uh, went to this bookstore in Marin County, and there were six people in the audience. One of them was the manager of the bookstore. One of them had wandered in, you know, and kind of taken up residence in the first row. Um, there, were, there was a crying young woman. I often have a crying young woman. It's like, <laughs> like a, That's a, your thing. That's your thing. Yeah, yeah. Those, those are my people. Um, but what made it truly memorable was that the other two people who were there were, were my cousins, <laughs> and they had never got to come. witness this. They moment got in to your witness life. my utter utter mortification, and I know that they had to be kind of looking at each other and thinking, "She makes a living at this. Like, how does this Did work?" She got an MFA. What? It was embarrassing. And <laughs> years later, I went back to the same bookstore, and I had 
a big crowd and the cousins were there again. There we go. It's like, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It is funny. So, it, you know, it, I think Jenny was on. She said she had a, I can't remember if she had a zero or a one, but she had her story. Everyone has their story. Well, zero amazing. would be okay because zero means you can just go home. Right. <laughs> Where it becomes problematic is one yeah. or three or or five even because then it feels very silly to present in front of so few people you really what you really want to do is just say like let's all just like sit down and chat yeah i'll go um, around the corner i'll buy you a drink yeah we'll, let, we'll like, let's just let's just do that yeah yeah oh that's funny your cousins well they're troopers i'm glad they got to come back for me for too. round two the best thing to do in positano other than write eat uh, <laughs> um, my 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 recommendations of restaurants in Positano are, are 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 long, and it depends on the time of year. We go in March, um, which is fantastic because the crowds of which you spoke are not. It's not it's not crowded yet mm-hmm. then, but the weather isn't always such that you can get out on on the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can get out on the sea, there is a boat ride um, to a nearby restaurant that if you take a car ride. It'll the, take, the car rides are death defying up there. People yeah, drive on well, there's a hair, hair bicycling pin, around. It's like hairpin turns and tourist buses that take up and both 200 lanes. Two hundred foot drops off and two hundred foot drops. Yeah, somehow I've gotten used to it, but um, mm. they're very. Um, if 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 one is prone to car sickness, they're yeah. perfect for that. Yeah. And this restaurant is so special. But if you take a car, is it in one of the neighboring coastal towns? Or it it's is. In? Okay, it's, it's on. It's on. It's on the the sea, and you, mm-hmm. if you come by boat, you pull in on the boat, and you get off the boat, and you walk up this dock, and you know you're basically eating fish that, you know, are swimming right water. beneath yeah. you, and it's really really special. Um, and it's called Los Colio. Um, if you go by car, which I've done, you just then have had a really delicious meal and have a very long ride home. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have the windows down, and yeah. by going home by boat at night is no safer or relaxing because we we did it. We stayed in Amalfi and mm-hmm. we came down to a restaurant that I don't remember if it was in Positano or one of the others, but we took like sort of a water taxi, I guess. It was a very small boat and the run, like almost nobody there has running lights. There are guys oh, out in boats fishing in the night I know. and he was ripping down there. I'm like, we're just going to plat. We're all going to die yeah. out here. And you, that, you can't see anything. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so by car or by boat, it's a little, little harrowing maybe, but it's one of the most beautiful spots in the world. An actor or two that you would cast to play Danny Shapiro in the movie version of Inheritance. Mm. It's hard because it actually is in development. Um, <laughs> I, directors attached, but not actors that yet. Is, that is correct. Okay. Um, you can punt on this one. This is this, you, you might have I'm, professional. I think I'm going to punt on that. Yeah. One. Okay. Yeah. You got you're conflicted professionally. You can't uh, yeah. can't get involved in that. But it's not your thing to opine on. This is your husband is dealing with this. Right. All right, last question for Danny Shapiro. One piece of advice for listeners. Are the listeners writers? Yes, let's, let's say they're... I mean, it could be on anything if you have life advice outside of that, but mm. um, for, for writers, maybe. Understand that everyone, all of us, actually have very similar internal lives. That we all really are part of the same stew of feelings and insecurities and emotions and don't judge people's um insides but you know by their outsides no that's great i love that well danny what a pleasure thank you for coming in here thank you doug i love this conversation 
you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com.